Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we begin a new series in 1 Peter. As you heard Kathy read for us, we're only going to cover the first two verses, but it's plenty, plenty to keep our attention right here. The title for this series is taken from Peter's own summary of the letter. This is at the end of the letter in chapter 5, verse 12. Peter says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter is writing this letter to early Christians, to these communities of, of, of Christians, and he says, I want to make sure that we understand what genuine Christianity is, what genuine gospel is, what genuine faith is, both in doctrine and in practice. His goal is to remind us and remind us today, just like he did with the early church, that we need to hold on to something that is true, that's real, that's genuine, amidst of all sorts of other ideas of what the gospel is, what the church is, what Christianity is. So this morning, as we start with these just two verses, we'll see a basic foundational piece of that, which is our identity. And then we'll see how the rest of the letter will essentially work it out. So this true grace of God that defines us is going to get worked out in both doctrine and practice as we work through the letter this fall. Now Peter begins by introducing himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ that gives him authority to speak to us and to speak to the church of his day. He speaks on the authority of Jesus who sent him to do this. And then at the end of this introduction, he greets people, and he wishes that peace and grace be multiplied to them. This is a Christian greeting. He wants all the consequences, all the benefits of life with Christ to be in his people's lives. But in between that introduction of who he is and wishing peace and grace to his readers, he gives us <clears throat> this wonderful description of who we are in Christ, our Christian identity. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Notice he's not just identifying his readers as people who live somewhere or people who believe something. He's given them this, this real identity of who they are. This, which I think is, is a stroke of God-inspired genius, to put it in two words, elect exiles. Because I'm writing to elect exiles. This is who you are. You need to process everything that's happening in your life through this lens, through who you are in Christ as elect exiles. So we're going to focus on that. So let's look at the importance of our identity first. Then we'll look at the identity itself, the nature of the identity. And finally, we'll finish by talking about the pattern for this identity. How do you get it? So in a sense, 
why we need it, why we need identity anyway, and then what it is and how we get it. All right, so who are Peter's intended readers? There are Christians in this particular part of the world, which is modern Turkey today, but used to be Asia Minor, part of the Roman Empire, and Peter calls them elect exiles. This is who they are, and this is where they live. Identity is really important. Last year we moved to Spanish Lake, which raises the question, what is Spanish Lake? It's a census-designated place. Did you know that? We're not a town. What are we? We're a census-designated place. We're kind of known by the government. They know how many people live in Spanish Lake. But there's no city hall. There's no downtown. In fact, our community association is lamenting that there's no center. There's nothing to identify as. There's nothing to say, this is what Spanish Lake is. If you come into our community from 270 as you get off at, at Bill Fountain, there's a sign that says, Welcome to Spanish Lake where the rivers meet. It's intriguing, isn't it? Is that our identity? Just a place where there's a confluence of two large rivers? There's a lot of history going back to the Spanish rule and later to German farmers. And more recently, there's a history of racial tensions that was depicted in a documentary that I actually watched before moving to St. Louis. I watched the documentary called Spanish Lake, and it gave me a lot of history of what's happening in this community. So what is our identity? As a Spanish Lake resident, who am I? What is it? Is it a town? Is it a community? What kind of community is it? Is there something distinct about us, or we're just an unincorporated place in St. Louis County? My postal address says St. Louis, but we're not in St. Louis. We're in the county. It's, it's very confusing. It's important to identify the place. It's important to identify who you are. It's important to say this is what it is. Now, I've been thinking about identity in terms of my own journey being born in Ukraine and having lived here now many years and having recently become an American citizen raises all sorts of questions of identity. Now, 30 years ago, if you talked to anybody from the former Soviet Union, most of us would have just been happy to say we're Russian. You know, we're kind of all Russian. It was a common cultural identity that many of us grew up with. Well, you don't say that now, do you? Don't say it to me. <laughs> because things changed, and we have rediscovered our ethnic, our national identity as Ukrainians. And that rediscovery happens in tension with other threats to that identity. In fact, one of the, uh, the more fertile times when that identity is discovered is when it's threatened. It's in times of conflict or war like today. There's a lot of differences that are drawn between Russians and Ukrainians today. And any Ukrainian would tell you, we are not Russian, we are not like them. Our identity is often shaped in conflict, which is why Peter is telling us you are elect, but you are exiles. And he's, he's drawing this line between the church and the world, and he's defining the church in relation to God first, but then in relation to the world. And we need to understand who we are as Christians if we are to relate to God or the world in the right way. Identity is what we are, but it's also what we are not. And the church has really struggled with holding on to this true Christian identity 
of being elect by God, but also exiled into this world. And sometimes we get too disconnected from this world as if we don't live here, and sometimes we get too disconnected from God as if the world is our home. But if we don't appropriate this right, balanced, gospel-rooted identity, we'll simply be looking and finding another. And a lot of issues in the church, throughout the history of the church, they have to do with how firmly we hold on to the true grace of God, to the true identity that we have through Christ. And Peter helps us have a clear view of this identity by putting it in just these two words, elect exiles. So let's look at it. What is the nature of our Christian identity? Well, first, we are elect. We are chosen by God. Peter is unapologetically applying Old Testament covenant language to Christians. Now, he's not writing to Jews. He's writing to pagans who became Christians through the preaching of missionaries, maybe apostles. But he is seeing the church in the same line as the Old Testament people of God. The Jews were chosen people, God's chosen people, and so are we. We're in the same line. We're part of the same people of God. And so it is appropriate to use the same imagery, the same language to us today. That's what Peter is doing to his readers. We are chosen by God. We are His. We belong to Him. Who we are, our identity, is shaped by God's choice to love us and to save us. And then Peter explains it further, and this is where it gets really interesting and really relevant. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are elect in the sanctification or by the sanctification of the Spirit. We are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So let's look at each of these phrases. This is a Trinitarian formula to explain what our relationship to God is. Why is it that we can say we are chosen by God, we are loved by Him, we are His? What does that mean? Well, first, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That means that before we responded to God, before the call to repentance was made to us, before I said yes to Jesus, before all of that, there was already a plan in the Father's mind to save us. Before we knew we had a Father in heaven, He was already calling His children home. He was already pursuing a relationship with us. And He was already determined to bring us back to Himself. Our relationship with God rests on His initiative and thus on His grace. You cannot understand our relationship with God without first rooting it in what He has decided, what He has determined, what He has committed Himself to do, which is to save us. It does not start with us. It doesn't start with our effort. It doesn't start with our ideas. It doesn't start with our desire. It starts with Him. Which is why Peter says, I want to tell you about the true grace of God. And you have to stand firm in the true grace of God. It's worked out in life. It includes our effort. It includes our obedience, and we'll get to that. But it begins with, and it's shaped by, God's own desire to save His people and to gather them to Himself. It's all by grace. Praise the Lord indeed. 
Now, secondly, we are chosen in or by sanctification of the Spirit, or you can translate it consecration of the Spirit. Big words. What it really means is that we have been relocated by the Holy Spirit into the realm of the holy. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, He takes you from where you used to be in this country of death, in the dark, without God, trusting your own efforts, trusting your own wisdom, and then He takes you out of that and He places you in the spiritual realm. He sets you apart. He sets you aside. He, he takes you out to take you into a realm, the realm of God. Our religion, the Christian faith, is supernatural. This isn't about you getting your life in order. This is about God completely changing the realm in which you live. I used to be in the dark, but then the Holy Spirit snatched me out, and He changed me. And so I used to belong in the dark, and now I belong in the light. How does that happen? Supernaturally. God does that. In the New Testament, it's called the second birth, or being born again, being born from above. And Peter, in fact, is going to talk about it next, so we'll talk about it next week. But that's the transformation that happens to a person who encounters God. We are born again. We're given a new nature, new creatures. And now we live in a new world, a world where God rules, the world where God exists and nobody can challenge that. That's the realm, the spiritual realm, the realm of holiness that we have been consecrated by the Spirit as belonging to God. And thirdly, we are chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. This is a little bit of an unusual combination of words here. What does Peter mean? Most scholars agree that he is alluding to a passage from the Old Testament. It's not unusual because he's already dealing with all these metaphors applied to God's people Israel. So look with me to Exodus, at Exodus 24, verses 3 and following. Exodus 24, 3 and following. This is the time when Israel, under Moses' leadership, makes a covenant with the Lord. A covenant is an agreement. A covenant is a definition of relationship. And look what happens here. Exodus 24, 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So God speaks to his people. Moses relays the message. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. There's a response. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is a ceremony. This is a symbolic meeting of God and humanity. And the conditions are here, the Lord does something, He speaks, He initiates, but our response is, 
we will participate in it. And the people say, we will obey these words. We will respond to this news of salvation that God is speaking to us. Remember, God has already rescued them from Egypt. He's already taken them out. He's kept them alive in the wilderness. And now he makes a covenant with them. And they will forever be his people, and he will forever be his God, their God. But it's based in the sacrifice of the lamb or the animals here in this case. The blood is spilled to unite God and his people. So Peter takes this imagery of being sprinkled with the sacrificial blood and pledging obedience to the Lord, and he says, you were chosen to be in a covenant relationship with God, just like Israel. This covenant, this new covenant, is also sealed with blood, but it is sealed with the blood of the Son of God. And you enter into this covenant by obedience and trust and faith in Him. In other words, Jesus says, follow me, and we say, yes. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave His life so we can be in covenant with God. We have been foreknown by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and now cleansed by the blood of Jesus so we can live in obedience to Him. That's salvation. The Father planned it. The Son accomplished it on the cross in the empty tomb. And the Spirit applies it into your life. And by now, I hope that if you're paying attention, you see that it's a Trinitarian work, that the Trinity is involved. Every person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this three-in-one, all persons are involved in our salvation. Now, what does that mean? That means that all of God, the whole Trinity, all of God, all of who God is, is committed to your salvation. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing to think about it. That means all that God is, all of Him, has decided and then followed through and then will never quit saving you. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are completely for you. This is, this is the kind of things that Peter is doing here, and these are the kinds of things that we are doing on Sunday mornings in this church. Because these are the truths, these are the ideas that ought to shape us. Because you're going to walk out, and all sorts of other identities are going to th be thrown at you. And so we need to regroup, and we need to say, who am I really? Who am I? I'm a person who was foreknown by the Father. It's planned to save me. I'm the person for whom Jesus' blood was spilled to save me, to connect me to God forever. And I'm the person that the Holy Spirit took and placed me into a different realm of existence to be with God forever. That is who I am. All of God is for me. But there's another phrase here. We have to add to that, and that is, all of you is for God. If all of God is for you, then the response is that all of me has to be for Him. That the expectation is that my whole life, my whole identity, my whole heart, my whole mind, my whole strength, 
All of that now has to be committed to him. If the blood of Jesus was spilled for me, then the only appropriate response is total obedience to him. So this is the summary of the Christian faith. All of God is for you, and all of you is for God. Do you see how comprehensive this true grace of God is? All of Him for all of you, so that all of you could be for all of Him. Do you see how our identity must be completely shaped by that? There's no part of it that's left out. No part of God, no part of us that's left out of this. All of Him is involved, and all of me must respond. How can anyone who understands this, who understands what Christianity actually is, whether they are Christian or not, how can they say it's just a matter of religion? Let's not get too bent out of shape about it. After all, we all have different ideas. Let's keep it to ourselves. No need to get all worked up about it. How can anybody say that? How can a Christian say that? How can a non-Christian who understands what Christianity is say that? It's not just a matter of religion. It's a matter of God. It's a matter of life. It's a matter of everything. If you get this and if you are shaped by this, everything is different. Everything. There's nothing that's left out of this. It's a comprehensive identity. This is who I am at my very core, chosen by God for himself, foreknown from eternity, set apart by the Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. I am completely his, and he has to shape who I am, what I believe, how I behave, what I suffer for, what my plans are, how I spend my weekends, how I spend my money, what I do at home, what I do at work. All of that is completely on the table. We are his elect. If you're a Christian, that's you. If you're not a Christian, don't you want that? If you're honest with yourself, don't you want all of God, all of God, with no hesitation, no reservations, to be completely on your side and shape your whole life? Isn't that what every person longs for? And yes, we try to find it in other identities and other pursuits, but isn't that what we really want? All of God, nothing less than all of God. This true identity, what we were made to be, what we will be in eternity. So if you're not a believer, I'm going to ask you to become one and to express your obedience to Jesus in faith and say, Jesus, I want all of that. I want all of God, and here's all of me, and I want that connection to happen. And he will do it. And the Spirit will take you from this place of death and into, transform you into the place, into the realm of life with God. We are elect. But there's another part. There's the second part of our identity. We are also exiles. Because if you just heard me say what I, what I just said, you would probably think, well, I shouldn't have any troubles in this life. All of God is for me. All of me is for God. Why should I struggle with anything? Why should I experience any tension, any stress? Well, here's your answer. We're also exiles. 
We're elect, but we're also exiles. This is a definition of identity in relation to the world that we live in. Exile literally means stranger or foreigner. In the first century world, this term was used to describe someone who did not hold citizenship in the place where they resided. They were seen as a foreigner. They didn't have all the rights or privileges or protections of citizens, and they were not expected to hold the values and practices and customs of their host culture. And because of all these differences, they were treated with suspicion and distrust. So Peter is saying, this is who you are. So if you look around in your own community, and there are people there that are here, but they're not fully accepted. Uh, They're here, they're maybe contributing positively to the community, but they're not from here. There's tension here. We're not sure if they believe the same things, if they practice the same things as, as, as I am. That's, what, that's the image he's getting at. So people who came into the community, they're not totally part of it, even though they live there. And of course, he's also using Old Testament language. Just as the Jews were exiles in Babylon where God took them out of Jerusalem as part of his discipline, and he placed them in these pagan cities, and specifically in Babylon. And by the way, Peter is going to mention Babylon at the end saying that the Rome is the new Rome is the new Babylon this culture is the new ba- Babylon for believers but just like the Jews lived in other places so Christians live in all sorts of places remaining exiles even though we engage in our community this this phrase he addresses them as elect exiles of the dispersion meaning that Just as the Jews were dispersed all over the ancient world, so the Christians are dispersed over the world. And so we end up in places like Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and Spanish Lake and Hazelwood and Florissant and O'Fallon. These places are real places. You know, Peter is talking about these elect exiles living in actual specific communities. And he says, as you live there in this local exile, it's intentional. Just, just as God placed the Jews in Babylon, so God has placed you in Bithynia and placed you in Hazelwood. There's all these places that God has designed for us to be in. And we live there. And we have responsibilities there. And yet we're never totally accepted there. There's tension. Elect exiles, we've been thrown into these places. And yes, we're here. But we're not from here. Historically, the church has always struggled when we try to assert our native status in this world. As we treasure our citizenship here more than we treasure our citizenship in heaven, we tend to drift from our true gospel identity. We are both elect and exiled, chosen by God and yet dispersed in the world. The world's values are not our values, but we live in the world and contribute positively to the life of our community. We live in particular places, and yet we live in a particularly different way. And by the way, the rest of the letter is Peter working out this tension between being elect and being exiled. And he's going to have a lot to say about how we are to treat the world around us and how we are to be treated by them. So there's no surprises. And he gives us a lot of clear instructions on how to respond to the world that doesn't accept you and yet 
demands that you be there, and God demands that we engage with the world. The only time outside of 1 Peter that the same word exile is used in the New Testament is Hebrews 11, verse 13. Describing all these various people from the Old Testament who lived by faith, the author of Hebrews says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That is our life. We are here. We're not from here. The world is not our home, and we shouldn't feel at home in it. And yet we've been placed here intentionally, purposefully, to serve our Lord where we are. So we have a commitment to specific places. You should feel part of a specific community and feel the responsibility for that community because God has placed you there. And yet at the same time, you should feel the tension because your values and your practices and your customs are not the same. Is there some overlap? Sure. Under the image of God and God's common grace, there's a lot of overlap sometimes. But there's a fundamental tension because the Spirit has placed you in the different realm of existence. You've been sanctified You've been consecrated. You are different. And the way you serve your community is different. And we ought to remember that we are not, as a church, to conform to the expectations of the world. Even the expectations that the world has for religion, for the church, we are shaped by this. We're shaped by this elect exile identity and the true grace of God. Let me give you an example of that, and then we'll wrap up with a challenge. Uh, I read uh, Eugene Peterson's memoir on my sabbatical and gleaned a lot from his experience. He started a church, a Presbyterian church in the 60s, early 60s, in a new suburb in Baltimore. And uh, they started meeting in their basement. They bought a house with a large basement, started meeting in the basement, cement floor, cement walls, narrow windows, uh, this was done out of necessity. There's no other places to rent, and so they had to start somewhere, and they decided to start in their basement. And it made it feel kind of cool, right? It made it feel kind of like we're doing something, something subversive here. We're underground. It made it feel like the early church. And so some of the young people in the church started calling the church the Catacombs Presbyterian Church. It wasn't the official name. I think it was Christ Presbyterian. But, but they started calling it the Catacombs, the Catacombs Presbyterian Church. And Peterson discerned that it was God's providence that allowed this new congregation, so everybody's new, there's some church people, some unchurched people, they're all coming with their own ideas of what this church should be. But in God's providence, God gave them that time, a couple of years, for their identity to be shaped apart from those expectations. Identity to be shaped by the gospel, to be shaped by the scriptures. He preached through the book of Acts in those early years, and he was really fighting against the expectations of the church because there was a certain expectation. Churches are supposed to look a certain way. People who come to church are supposed to look a certain way. We're supposed to do certain things in the church. We are respectable church people. And yet meeting in the basement 
and looking at the scriptures together allowed them to shape this new, true, real Christian identity. And Peterson also noticed that, and this is early 60s, some of you remember, that lots of his neighbors in this new, in this new subdivision were building bomb shelters in their backyards because people were scared because they were getting ready for a nuclear attack. And so we're, they were digging into the ground and they were preparing to be underground even as the church was meeting in another underground facility in the same neighborhood. Peterson writes, given the hysteria of fear that was permeating the times, I didn't say anything to anyone, but I wondered if people might notice the catacombs Presbyterian and that we were providing a very different kind of underground sanctuary, preparing us for the kingdom of God. I hoped someone might notice, nobody did, or if they did, nothing was said. Even so, the catacombs, like the bomb shelters scattered through the neighborhood, protected us from radiation fallout that was destroying the seed antibodies of leaven and salt and light among God's people, and that was resulting in lethal cancerous growth throughout the body of Christ in America. This was a big blessing for them. It allowed them to be separate from these expectations of church, from this worldly expectations of what church should be, and focus on the gospel itself and be shaped by it. That is my hope for our church, too, that we are constantly challenging the world, and we are constantly responding and saying, this is not how it should be, and our identity is not shaped by the world. We're exiles in the world, but we are elect of God, and we have this true grace identity that defines how we worship, how we serve, what we do. Part of the idea behind Wednesday Night Family Connection is to allow us to, to help train each other in this new identity, to help grow and to help discover, not just as individuals, but together as a community, including our children, including our grandchildren, and working through what this gospel means so we can grow together and resist the identity that the world wants to place on us. And finally, what is the pattern for this identity, or how do you get it? How do you get all of God for all of your life? How do you become completely for God and shape your whole identity through this gospel? Well, there's one person that looms large in this letter. In fact, as you read the letter, and I encourage you to read beforehand and kind of get a feel for the whole letter, you will see that Peter mas masterfully weaves commands and very specific instructions of how to relate to the world and what to do, what to do in your home, with your spouse, with your children at work. He's working through all of that, but he masterfully weaves the example of Jesus into it. Almost nothing he says in this letter is not connected directly to how Jesus lived, how Jesus died, how Jesus rose again. Because the whole point of this identity is that it's not made up. It's actually taken from someone. There is a person that person is Jesus, and Jesus is himself an elect exile. And so as you follow him, as he gathers you into his kingdom and into his church, you simply reflect who he is, and you walk in his steps, and you take on his character, and you become like him. He is the ultimate elect exile. A little bit later in the same chapter, Peter says, this is verse 20 in chapter 1, 
talking about Jesus now, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus was determined. He, what, God designed that Jesus would come from eternity past. God has determined that Jesus would be our Savior, elect for us, chosen for us, claimed for us. One commentator says, even before creation, God had chosen both the people who would be redeemed and the agent who would redeem them. He's not just choosing us for himself. He's also chosen Christ to be our Redeemer. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus, this Redeemer, this promised chosen Redeemer, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter preaching, the same Peter preaching to this, this gathering in Jerusalem. He's saying what happened on the cross was according to God's plan. Even though it takes no responsibility off of you, but this is something that God is doing. And now repent and come to this Jesus, to this crucified and risen Jesus, and draw your identity directly from him because he's the elect of God, and yet he came as an exile into this world, and that tension eventually was so high that we killed him. And yet he rose again. And this hope through his resurrection allows us to live as elect exiles in the world that killed our Savior. As you consider that, my one call to you is look to him and is follow him. And as you follow him, you will receive this identity, maybe for the first time, and you will grow deeper and fuller into that identity of the true grace as you follow the risen Jesus. And then grace and peace will be multiplied to you. Grace and peace of the relationship with God, grace and peace in your exile. He will be with you even as you are with him.